Hey, I'm Zach. I'm the lead pastor here at Restore. Thanks so much for checking out this week's podcast. I hope that it encourages you and inspires you, and I also hope that it challenges you. And I want you to know that we are in our year in the greatest commandment, looking at this great commandment from Jesus to love God and to love people. And so I hope more than anything that this encourages you to love God and to love the people around you in a more holistic way. I also hope that you have some people around you to talk through some of these things with. And if you don't, we would love to see you at one of our Sunday gatherings or in one of our Restore groups. You can get all that information on our website at RestoreAustin.org. I hope you enjoy the message. Thanks. In the parts of Jesus' life we have recorded in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, if you count all of the questions he has asked up, you come to 183 So four accounts of Jesus' life, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, 183 different questions he was asked. Do you know how many he answered? Three. He was asked 183 different questions, and he directly answered three of them. Now, you may not have known those exact numbers, but if you've read much of the accounts of Jesus' life, you know that he often, when he's asked a question, likes to change the subject right, or tell a story instead of giving a straight answer, or more commonly, ask a question when he is asked a question. In fact, he asks 307 different questions in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So stay with me on these numbers. He asks 307 questions. He is asked 183, and how many does he answer? Three. So it would seem like those three answers were pretty important, right? So the first one happens when a dad brings his young son to the disciples to heal him. The kid's really sick, he needs help, he goes to the disciples, and the disciples are not able to heal him. And so the dad's like, whatever, I'm going to go see the boss, right? So he takes the kid, goes to Jesus, and Jesus immediately heals him. So the disciples go to Jesus, and they're like, why couldn't we heal him, Jesus? And this is what he says, because you have so little faith Truly, I tell you, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move. Nothing will be impossible for you. That's the first question he directly answers. The second one is when one of his closest followers, a guy named Peter, asks Jesus about forgiveness. Here's what it says. Then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Up to seven times? Now, Peter thinks that he's being like super generous, right? Seven times? Jesus answered, I tell you, not seven times, but 77 times. So the first answer is about faith. Second answer is about forgiveness. But I think the third and final one is the best and most important by far. This question is asked by a Jewish religious leader belonging to a group called the Pharisees. Here's the question. One of them, an expert in religious law, tried to trap him with this question. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Now, when it says this guy is an expert in the law, it means that he has all 613 Old Testament Jewish laws memorized. 613 of them. He's got them memorized. He's an expert in the law. And so this expert is asking Jesus to choose which of the 613 laws are most important in the eyes of God. Now, Matthew tells us, we just read it, right, that this question is literally a trap. He is trying to trap Jesus with this question. You see, the vast majority of religious leaders at that time, they hated Jesus. And that's because The religious leaders used religion 
to get money and power from the people that they were supposed to be helping. They had this fear-based leadership culture that they were always telling them, God's mad at you, God's upset with you. Only we can plead on your behalf to God. We can make sacrifices on your behalf and, and ask him to forgive you on your behalf. You have to go through us, and so we need your money in order to do that, and we all have the power. We have the influence. And so that's what they got from being religious leaders, money and power. But you see, Jesus is messing all this up. Because he comes on the scene teaching about the unconditional love of God. He's telling people that they can't earn God's love by trying really hard and keeping all the rules, but that God loves them simply because they are his children. So this religious leader thinks he can trick Jesus into blasphemy with this question. You see, because if Jesus elevates one law over the others, they will accuse him of contradicting God who gave all the laws equally, right? It's like, who are you to elevate one of the laws over the other one? But if he doesn't elevate any of them, or if he tries to dodge the question, they will accuse him of being ignorant of the law. Well, we're experts. You don't even know the law. You can't even answer this question. And then deem him unqualified to be a teacher. This is a no-win situation for Jesus. Of all the 183 questions he is asked, this seems like the one to deflect, right? It seems like the one to dodge. But he doesn't. He answers it. And he answers it so directly that his answer has come to define what it means to be a Christian more than any other verse in the Bible. Here's what it says. Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And a second is equally important. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and all the prophets hang on these two commandments. Doesn't get much more direct than that, right? Jesus says, love God and love others. That is what is most important. And he even doubles down on just how far-reaching this commandment is. He said, all the law and the prophets hang on this. Now, this is unfamiliar language to some of us, but that's him basically saying that everything God has ever said, everything that we now have in the Old Testament comes down to this. God's ultimate mission for us, really the entirety of the Christian life comes down to loving God and loving others. So that's why back in August, we kicked off our year in the greatest commandment, which simply means that we're going to spend the next year here at Restore walking through various teaching series designed to help us understand and embrace what it looks like to love God and to love others. So we spent the first few months of this year talking about the love God has for us because this is the foundation for everything else. If you remember, 1 John 4 says that we love because he first, God first, loves us. That means we can't fulfill the greatest commandment. We can't love God and love others without understanding that we are first loved by God. So if you missed any of those series, they're on our Vimeo YouTube or podcast, I would go back and check them out because it really was a truly like, rich and beautiful season of just resting in the embrace of God's love for us. And I'm serious when I say nothing else matters if we don't first understand just how loved we are by God. So, with God's love as our foundation, this morning we shift our focus to something much more practical, what it looks like to fulfill the first half of the greatest commandment, what it means to love God with all our heart, all our soul, all our mind, and all our strength. 
Now that language Jesus uses, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, did not actually originate with him. In fact, if you looked closely at the verses I just put up, you would see that there are actually quotation marks around that part of what Jesus says. That's because Jesus is quoting something called the Shema. Raise your hand if you've heard of the Shema. Handful of you. The Shema is this prayer that Jewish people said every single morning and every single evening for thousands of years. In fact, many of them still say it today. It's a prayer originally given to them by God through Moses, and it goes like this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. So every morning and every evening from the time Moses introduced it to them until now, Jewish people have prayed the Shema. In fact, Jesus himself grew up as a young Jewish boy and a young man, praying the Shema every morning and every evening. Now, these three things that the Jewish people are called to love God with, it says their heart, their soul, and their strength, they might seem kind of arbitrary to us, but they were actually very purposefully chosen. Let me tell you why. Heart, in the Hebrew language, is the word lev. And this is really an all-encompassing term for both emotions and intellect. It's where you do your thinking and your feeling. You see, ancient Hebrews did not have a concept of a mind or a brain. They didn't really think about things like that. So lev, that word heart, is often used to refer to both the mental and emotional parts of a person. That's why the Shema from Deuteronomy is missing that word mind when compared to our verses that Jesus says. You see, Jesus adds it because in the Greco-Roman culture he lived in, they understood more about the mind being this separate entity from the heart. But in ancient Jewish time, they did not. It was just all of you, the heart, where you thought, where you felt kind of your mind, brain, emotions, will, decision-making. It was basically every intangible part of you. Does that make sense? That's the first thing. Now, the soul is a word called nephesh. And nephesh is a word that literally means throat, right? But since everything that is needed for life comes through the throat, right, air, food, water, it goes in and out of your throat, this term became used often to refer to the whole physical person. Does that make sense? So heart, lev, is like the whole non-physical person, all the intangible parts of you. And then nephesh, right, that's translated soul, is, is all the physical parts of you, your throat, right, the things that life goes in and out of. So those are the first two. It seems like that covers everything, right? But the last one is kind of interesting, and it's strength, and it's this word meod. And this word is actually almost never translated strength like it is here. It's used all over the Old Testament, this Hebrew word, but it's almost never translated strength. It actually means very or much. And it's an adjective or an adverb used to intensify a noun or a verb. So most famously, it's used after God finishes creation. You may remember this story, Genesis 1 and 2. He, he creates all the things, the first six days, whatever, and then he looks out and he says, this thing is tov meod. That means very good. It's not just good, it is very good. That's what meod means, very or much. So why does it appear here in the Shema as a separate attribute that people, the Jewish people are supposed to love God with? Well, it's meant to intensify the first two attributes, heart and soul. So remember, right, in Hebrew, the soul is all of your physical being and the heart is all of your non-physical being, like your mind, will, and emotions. So these first two attributes, they cover every part of you. 
So me'od is meant to intensify the first two things to their full effect. The Jewish people were called to love God with everything. With everything. Their physical and their non-physical part, their tangible and their non-tangible part, very much with everything. That's why the teaching series we're starting today is called With Everything. Because that's what we're called to do. That's what it means to fully love God. Now, as we've already said, ancient Hebrews and really most cultures in the ancient Near East divided the person into these two parts, kind of the material and immaterial, the physical and non-physical. But Greek and Roman influenced cultures like our own, there was more to it than that. They more commonly divided a person into four parts, heart, soul, mind, and strength. Now, as I said, you probably already know that our Western culture is significantly more like Greco-Roman culture that Jesus lived in than the ancient Hebrew culture of the Old Testament. So we're going to look at God. How do we love him with everything by separating into these four parts, heart, soul, mind, and strength? And we're going to take them one at a time over the next four weeks. Now, one quick caveat before we dive in. There are tons of ways to define these four terms. Okay, so I don't want you to get hung up on, well, I thought heart meant this, or I thought soul meant this. Even the biblical authors use them in totally different, even sometimes contradictory ways. They're words, just like you and I use words. They're used in all different kinds of ways. But our goal in this series is not to figure out the best way to define them all. Our goal is to define them in a way so that when they are all put together, they make up the whole of a person. Does that make sense? Because we're called to love God with everything. So, like I said, we're going to take them one at a time over the next four weeks, and today we kick it off with loving God with our heart. That sound good? Me and not. All right, here we go. Loving God with our heart. The Greek word that Jesus uses for heart here is cardia. Now, you may recognize that word, right? It's obvious where we get the word cardiac from, which is a medical or anatomical word for anything related to the heart. So, like a cardiac arrest is a heart attack, or like a cardiac unit is a medical group specializing in heart issues, cardia was the word that they used in Greek for heart. Now, I don't know about you, but when I hear cardia or cardiac, I immediately think of like my physical heart, right? I think of the medical part, I think of the anatomical part of me, the thing inside my chest, pumping blood, keeping me alive, but that's not what Jesus is talking about here. In fact, in our English Bibles, the word heart appears over 1,000 times, and not once is it referring to our cardiac muscle. Not one time. Another way to say it is that Jesus isn't talking about loving God with our literal heart here. He's talking about loving God with our figurative heart, with our affections. Again, there are lots of ways we can take this call to love God with our affections, but honestly, I think we usually way overthink this one. We try to figure out what heart means and all the different definitions and here's how it's used and here's how it's not used and blah, blah, blah. I think we overthink it. Here's what I think. I think loving God with all our heart means finding joy in him. I think it's that simple. Loving God with all our heart is finding joy in him. So that's what I'm gonna break down for the rest of our time together. Because I believe this is a choice that we make each and every single day. Now, choosing to find joy is different than experiencing happiness, right? Choosing joy and experiencing happiness are two totally different things because happiness is an emotion that fluctuates based on our circumstances. Things go well, and we are happy. Things go poorly, and we are unhappy, right? 
For the last 11 years, the Harris Poll, this really famous poll taker, has been conducting a survey called the Annual Happiness Index. This past year, 33% of Americans reported feeling happy overall. 33%. Now, when interpreting these results, some sociologists have said this doesn't only signify that two-thirds of Americans are unhappy, it also means that Americans as individuals are unhappy two-thirds of the time. Does that make sense? Not just that in this room, 66% of you are unhappy, but that actually 100% of you will be unhappy for 66% of your life. Does that make sense? It's kind of a downer, right? Why is that? Because life is hard. Because the world is a mess. It's a mess. I don't know if you've looked around. It's a mess. And when things go well, we are happy. But when things go poorly, we are unhappy. But joy, y'all, joy is different. Joy transcends circumstance because, you see, joy is a choice. It's a choice to find God's good in life regardless of what is happening around us. Here's how Pastor Tim Mackey says it. Joy is an attitude God's people adopt, not because of happy circumstances, but because of their hope in God's love and promise. This is what it means to love God with all our heart. We choose to find our joy in him. Now, the very first Christians, they had the exact same choice that we have today. Try to find happiness in circumstances and experiences or choose to find their joy in God. Now, there was this guy named Paul. Some of you may have heard of him. He wrote the vast majority of the New Testament. Now, Paul has a crazy story. Okay, Paul was actually, in the days of the early church, Paul was killing Christians. Like, literally, he was going around. He was one of those religious leaders that we just talked about, one of the ones that tried to trick Jesus from our story earlier. And he is going around. He has gotten the, the go-ahead from the Roman government at the time to kill whatever Christians he wants. So actually, in the book of Acts, which records this first part of the church, we see him at the stoning of a guy named Stephen. He is leading it. He is killing Christians. This is what he does. And then he's walking down the road one day, and this huge blinding light hits him, and he has this crazy conversion. He basically meets God on the road to Damascus. And Jesus says, why are you persecuting me? And Paul has this incredible conversion experience. He goes from killing Christians to actually starting churches all over the ancient Near East and all over kind of Eastern Europe. Now, one of the first places he plants a church is in a city called Philippi. Now, Philippi was a Roman settlement in the area of Macedonia, and it's mostly made up of Roman nationalists. That's going to be important, okay? Mostly made up of Roman nationalists with a really large population of former Roman military. Now, I tell you that because they loved Caesar. Like this town, the, the people of Philippi, they were, they were nationalists. They were all about Rome. They loved Caesar. They were incredibly loyal to him. And if you remember, if you know your history, Caesar wasn't just a ruler. He was, 